Good morning. We are in week two of our series on Am- in Amos called The Generosity and Justice of God. The message of Amos the prophet is that if we have come to know and experience God's love for us in Christ, then that will spill over. We must join Jesus in bringing social justice to our families, our friends, and our communities with everything that we have our entire life. And this is the natural overflow. This is the spillover of God's love for us. And so last week, Rick talked about God's love has a purpose. And because God is loving, he does not ultimately tolerate what is unloving. It's, it's impossible for him to do that. God's love is an, an exacting love. It cares about who we are becoming. So he said this last week, God is spectacularly accepting of you and wants you to become like him. We live out his justice because we live inside his love. He didn't give us what we deserve. He put his judgment on Jesus and Jesus' love on us. And so now we are compelled by his love to love justice. It's a good word. This week, we want to talk about how worship and justice go together. Last week was, was justice and love are tied together. In this week, worship and justice are tied together. True worship, in other words, spills over, spills out into the street. In case you weren't here, or just to give you a little bit more background, Amos, um, the year is around 750 BC. The kingdom of Israel, which had thrived under King David and King Solomon, now is split in two. And uh, Israel in the north, in Judea, in the south, and Israel had just had one horrible king after another. They just could not get a good king. And Jeroboam II, which is, who is king when Amos is around, was one of the worst kings that Israel had. On the surface, everything looked great. I mean, they were not at war with anyone. There was financial and economic stability. Um, things looked good. But spiritually, And morally, Israel was bankrupt. They had turned their back on God, and they had worshipped false gods. They had become self-sufficient and hypocritical. They had become nationalistic and had completely um, been apathetic toward God and toward people who were in need. They had neglected justice. In the southern kingdom of Judea, there was a man named Amos. And so God calls Amos, like literally fresh off the farm, uh, to be a prophet, to travel north to the city of Bethel, which was the, like the, the cultural and the, the economic, but also the, the, the spiritual center, worship center of the northern kingdom, um, to go prophesy to his people. Um, to call people back to his mercy and back to his grace, to pronounce judgment against idolatry and injustice. Really, it was to call people back to true worship. That was Amos's message. At one point late in the book, <clears throat> in chapter 7, Amaziah is the priest in the northern kingdom. 
So if he's a priest in the northern kingdom, you can imagine that he uh, was not all that. He was not doing what he was supposed to do as a priest. And so he comes to Amos and he says, would you just go back to where you came from? We're really sick of it, you know, it's like this whole message of, of God's judgment is kind of bumming us out because we, what we preach here in the northern kingdom is, is prosperity. What we preach is blessing, you know. Look at it. I mean, we're, we, we are thriving here. We don't need you to come in and take this off the rails. And Amos says, look, man, I didn't go to prophet school. Uh, this isn't a family business for me. God called me to come and prophesy. He says, I'm a farmer. I'm a shepherd. I'm, I'm a cultivator of fig trees. That's, my, that's what I do. This isn't, this isn't what I do, except now this is what I do. And this is what God is saying through me. So the book of Amos is a series of poems and sermons and visions that God has in judgment on the people of Israel for turning their back on him and turning their back on the oppressed. And so uh, um, the first couple of chapters, Amos proclaims God's judgment for all of the surrounding countries, right? All the surrounding nations that had really brutally oppressed Israel. So he's going through them one by one in chapter two. And if as Israel was hearing that, then they would have been, yeah, preach it. Go, God. You know, destroy them. They've got it coming. And then Amos turns the tables. And it's kind of like all of those, those movies where they bring somebody into, like, you know, blacklist. They bring them into the, to the, 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 uh, the FBI headquarters, and there's a table there, and, and they bring them in, and they set them behind the table, and they turn that little light bulb over the desk, and, and then they close the door. And suddenly Israel realizes, oh, this isn't just about them. Actually, God's judgment and the words that came were way longer for Israel. Amos turns the tables. God's people had become full of sin. And what exacerbated that was that they lost their gratitude for God. They lost their appreciation for his grace and his presence and his faithfulness and his glory. So in chapter 2, uh, if you want to put that slide up, this is an, an indictment of them. They sold the innocent. They trampled on the poor. They denied legal justice to the oppressed. They misused sex by taking advantage of others. They collected unjust taxes through government corruption. They worshipped God falsely, and they worshipped false gods. And the, and the mind-blowing part is that in the middle of all of this, they kept going to church. They kept worshiping, pretending that everything was okay. In fact, the people of Israel were super religious. They loved religion. They loved coming and doing the deal and, and going to the high places and singing the songs. They were good at it. But their worship services were more about them than they were about God. So through Amos, God is calling them out of their distorted worship. And in chapter 4, this is where he starts. Go ahead. This is God talking to the people of Israel. Go ahead. Offer sacrifices to the idols at Bethel. 
Keep on disobeying at Gilgal. Offer sacrifices each morning and bring your tithes every three days. Present your bread made with yeast as an offering of thanksgiving. Then give your extra voluntary offering so you can brag about it everywhere. This is the kind of thing you Israelites love to do, says the sovereign Lord. And then the judgment. Amos 3. Now listen to this and announce it through all of Israel, says the Lord, the God the Lord God of heaven's armies. On the very day I punish Israel for its sins, I will destroy the pagan altars at Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. <laughs> Jeroboam had had Amaziah make two golden calves to, to replicate um, the golden calf in, in the wilderness after the, ex, after the exodus, right? One wasn't enough. He made two. So he says the horns of the altar, the literal horns, will be cut off and fall to the ground. Chapter 5, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. God says, was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No. You, you served your pagan gods, the images you made for yourselves. And here's the heartbreaking thing. They, they knew better. I mean, they were God's covenant people, and there was this disconnect. God put it like this to another prophet named Isaiah. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So their worship of me is in vain. And then this in Amos chapter 7. He showed me this. The Lord was standing there by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? I replied, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will no longer spare them. Isaac's high places will be deserted. In Israel's sanctuaries will be in ruins. I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Plumb line. I don't know how, my, how many of you have used one. Uh, they're, they're handy if you're doing construction. A plumb line is an, an external standard by which to measure what is actually true. God's plumb line in this instance, is his assessment of the worship of his people. And I was thinking about this. How do we usually assess worship, right? Um, we, we tend to uh, have a bit of a criteria, whether that's a written criteria or not. And some of that is really natural. I mean, every year we graduate a bunch of seniors out of this ministry and and so we try to connect them with churches in whatever city they're going to. And, um, <clears throat> in, in it, you know, it's, it's a kind of a system of, of church shopping, which that in itself is like this really kind of yucky consumeristic label. I'm, I'm shopping for churches. 
that, that has even a, a bent in its language that it's about what I am going to get out of it. And some of that is, is, is perfectly natural and, and benign, you know, that we want to be in a place where, where they are really teaching the word of God and where um, there is even stylistically where I, I feel, you know, engaged and, and comfortable. And, but when our whole criteria and our whole assessment is what am I getting out of this? Maybe that's a different kind of assessment and criteria than what we need to have. Maybe our, our true criteria is, well, God, what are you getting out of this? Which is the question that is fundamental for us. Who is worship for? Who's it for? And for the people of Israel, it was all about them. God's plumb line revealed that their worship was self-centered, that their worship was, was idolatrous, was, was nationalistic, was hypocritical. It did not extend outside the doors. It ignored, and even worse, it participated in injustice. Their idolatry had led to moral decay, and their distorted view of God had led to injustice. So God sends Amos, the farmer, the shepherd, the fig tree cultivator, to the northern kingdom, to the heart of their worship and their idolatry. And he has this message, and really it's a call to worship. It's a call to alignment with what true worship is. And so really what I want us to do today, and I think the takeaway for us, is how are we viewing worship and, and what is God's assessment and what is plumb, what is true? Without true worship, there is no plumb line. There is no center. There is no gauge. There is no focus. There is no direction. There is no true. Psalm 29:1 says, ascribe to the Lord glory, attribute. Place worth on the Lord glory. That's worship. And when we fail to ascribe glory to the Lord, a lot of things happen. We, we get off of true. We get off of plumb. We jump on every trend. We are devastated when anything hits us. We are manipulated and we tend to manipulate others to get our way. When we're not ascribing glory to God. When we fail to ascribe glory to God, life is about filling one immediate gratification after another. If I can just get to that place or have that relationship or buy that thing or accomplish this task, then all will be lovely. And so it's this pursuit of the idolatry rather than the pursuit of God when we fail to ascribe glory to God. When we fail to ascribe glory to God, by default, we ascribe glory to ourselves. We become consumed with our own happiness and comfort instead. I was thinking about in, in our downstairs lobby, we have windows in the entryway and we have doors, old doors, you've seen the doors. Those are from the original campus house. So 
Part of it is just our history. But another part is, is a metaphor. We want to have lots of doors in and out of this ministry, lots of ways for people to connect with this community. But we also want to have windows to the world. We want to see the needs that exist on this campus and in the city and in this world. What happens when we don't ascribe glory to God is that we trade the windows of seeing the needs and of the oppressed and of the poor and of the broken. We trade those windows for mirrors. Mirrors that reflect our own security and self-preservation and self-promotion. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? You heard of that? Many of us would know the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy him forever. What is the chief end of God? What does he live for? Well, a common answer, especially in this country, would be to make us feel good about ourselves, to make us happy, and to let good people go to heaven when they die, which is not the gospel. If the goal is happiness, then God becomes currency. Love is turned away from God, and faith becomes a buffet, and people are formed into a faith that is the image of our own happiness. When we're not ascribing glory to God, worshipers tend to use Jesus instead of submitting to his kingship, taking Jesus for a trial run. I'll give it 90 days before I sign on. Worship becomes a matter of securing the results we think will give us life, extracting from God what we think will bring us happiness. So God brings this plumb line. He says, you don't need that. You don't need that false worship. You don't need that idolatry. I am calling us, God says, I'm calling you back to what is true. And that is predicated upon, do we trust that he actually knows and that he actually loves. And that his vision and version of truth is actually true. So here's true worship, friends. True worship is valuing. It's treasuring God above all things and living our lives in such a way that it pleases him and brings glory to him. True worship is the ousting, is the impeachment of ourselves from the center, giving God his rightful place. The self is no longer the hub of reality. True worship is the priority we place on who God is in our lives and where God is on our list of priorities. Worshiping God for who he is and not simply for what he has done for us. Like, truly being thankful for what he's done for us. Like, blown away by what he's done for us. But our worship is simply because he is. Not just what he's given us. 
True worship is a matter of the heart that is expressed through a lifestyle of holiness and fidelity. Worship is an invitation to search our hearts in order to align and realign with his truth and grace. James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. True religion that God accepts is to look after orphans and widows, the least of these, and holiness, to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. True worship is all in. It's spirit and truth. It is Paul in Colossians saying, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of Jesus. No compartments, complete surrender. We just sang it. C.S. Lewis says the Christian way is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. saw a documentary one time on Buster Keaton. I'm a big fan of silent films. There's, I haven't seen it yet, but there's a Laurel and Hardy film that just came out that's supposed to be, <laughs> supposed to be really good. Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. I, I, I love those, those movies. Their ability to express um, through facial expressions a multitude of words is just phenomenal. Buster Keaton was, was one of my favorites. In this documentary, his, his wife is being interviewed after his death. And she revealed that when he was buried, he was buried with a rosary in one pocket and a deck of cards in another. That way, whether he went to heaven or hell, he would have his bases covered. <laughs> the Israelites wanted the prerogative. It's a false prerogative, but they wanted the prerogative to both worship God and to hang on to their idols. They wanted God's assets without his authority. They wanted to receive God's blessing while neglecting his, ju his justice. They were raising one hand in worship while hanging on to an idol with the other. And both hands were shoved in their pockets when it came to seeing and serving and reaching out to the lost and the broken and the victims of injustice. You see, justice equals worship equals holiness equals love. It's a, it's a package deal with God. Worship and justice are the same thing. True worship, true worship, God's plumb line calling us back to true worship. True worship cannot be both God praising and idol loving. It cannot be both hand raising and justice neglecting. True worship cannot be both outwardly pious and inwardly toxic. True worship is aligned both vertically and horizontally. 
It's vertically aligned and horizontally extended, raising the heart and the hand and the praise and the adoration to Jesus and stretching the heart and the hand and the compassion and the care to the least of these. It's both. We must gather to worship. Hebrews chapter 10 says, don't neglect the habit of meeting together to worship. The the expressions and the rituals of worship, the the gathering together, the fellowship, the the offering and the praise and the tithes and the spiritual gifts, that's all vital for us as a community. Acts 2.42, the people of God met to teach scripture and for fellowship and the breaking of bread, which included communion and prayer. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5 says, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Psalm 63, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. May those same lips that praise God speak words of encouragement in words of advocacy words of truth and grace. May those same hands that stretch out to reach God and visually demonstrate our adoration of him be hands of action in service and giving, stretched out to those in need so that they can have an opportunity to stretch their hands in worship. Hebrews 13 Through Jesus, therefore, let's continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. The Israelites had a whole set of both and. Their whole system of both and was, I can have God in idolatry. I can praise God and neglect the the injustice. God is calling us to a different kind of both and. He's calling us to praise him with everything that we have, to adore him because he alone is worthy of it. But that is always going to spill over into acts of justice, acts of serving. Romans 12, 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. And uh, if you do a word study on that word, it's not just it's not just what leaves a shadow, but it's everything that you are. To offer all that you are as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and pop, proper worship. As the Israelites would come into the place of worship, they would make a sacrifice. And God says, because your heart is not with your sacrifice, in in two or three places in scriptures it says, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
says it's not about the, the act of worship. It's not about the rituals. It's not about going through the motions. It's about your heart. So the heart, the sacrifice that God really desires is this, is this heart of worship that spills over into true religion, which is taking care of the orphans and the widows. to lay down my religion in order to grasp the feet of Jesus. I'm laying down all my religion. I'm laying down my idols of achievement in order to receive what Jesus once and for all achieved for me on the cross. I'm laying down my, my idols of self-sufficiency in order to receive the all-sufficient grace of God. I'm laying down my idols of comfort in order to receive the covenantal love of Christ, which is true comfort and peace and joy. I'm laying down my idols of apathy in order to receive the kingdom mission that we've been given. To look at Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, means that we look at the world differently. That when we can focus on the one who is our savior, the healer, then we start to take on his vision for a lost and dying world. We lay down our fear and our apathy and our laziness. and our, We start mimicking the motions of the king who washes feet. So as we come to communion, can we be aligned with what is true about God? Can we be aligned with what is true about his purpose for our worship, with his mission? Can we come to God? And sometimes we... we Focus on the fact that when we come to worship, we come with confession of praise for who God is, but we also come with confessions of, of our own sin and of our own misalignments in places that we have grabbed a hold of idols instead of grabbing a hold of Jesus. Can we lay down our idols of achievement and self-sufficiency and comfort and apathy in order to be aligned with what is true. John 15, Jesus said there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And in 1 John 3, the Apostle John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let's not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And so, Lord, we come confessing our idols and our own neglects of what is just. And thank you that you don't keep us in a place of shame. But with confession comes freedom. 
but it also brings a, a realignment with what is true. Jesus, you are truth. So we want to be aligned with you today. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made, the once and for all sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the true worshiper and that you invite us to come close.